This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's just a conversation. It's just a conversation. Not a show. But it's definitely definitely not a show. The... um. No, I, I wanted to, I mean, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, for a yeah. whole host of reasons, but one of them I just want to talk about, because it's like, there's this thing that uh, people assume, and I think a lot of people in our business probably subscribe to about um, the competitive nature of what it is we all do. And uh, I, I, I don't pay an enormous attention to award season every year, but whenever I check in, it's, they always try to sort of set it up as this kind of, uh, you know, this huge competition and this huge battle and I got to say, my um, uh, tell tell me if I'm wrong. My 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 fling with that world um, in 2006 was uh, a pretty joyful experience. And um, I got to say, though, um, I think where my where my experience may have differed from uh, our guests is that because uh, we all got nominated for like kind of the same awards, the WGA award, the yeah. BAFTA, the Oscar, the I, I'm sure there's, there were a bunch. I feel like all we did was shows for a while. Yes. Um, but there is something about kind of traveling around the country, uh, lo- losing to great writers and a great movie. Um, in my case, it was uh, Brokeback Mountain and uh, Diana, Diana and Larry McMurtry who wrote it. And um, uh, it, it removed all tension because you guys were the movie that year. And so I just got to go to these shows. I got to get treated like royalty wherever we went, have a great time. Drinks were always free. Food was always free. And um, I got to know a whole bunch of, uh, I guess, the people I was in ferocious competition with. But but of all of them, I got to say, Diana Asano was just absolutely one of my favorite people from that whole experience. And um, it was it was always kind of joyful to uh, to lose to you guys. <laughs> well, I remember what I remember, Josh, and I think I told you this. That was a brand new experience, really, for both me and Larry. Mm-hmm. Larry just didn't do that kind of thing. He just wasn't interested. And. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about his first film and trying to get into the premiere. But um, you were like my big brother, you know, my, my, you resembled my brother. In fact, you're great big like him, tall and sort of bear-like. And I was, I felt uh, sort of really out of place. I am mm-hmm. an observer. I'm not a, a big on being, you know, in front of the camera. I like being behind the camera, all that. So it was hard for me. And I, um, Larry and I tend to be just who we are. We, we have no sort of, um, well, we have egos for sure. We have to have an ego to be in this business, but we don't have um, any pretense, I guess is the best way to put it. We just are who we are. And you, didn't, you didn't have a persona that you slapped no. on before you went out. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I, and uh, it was a lot of fun. However, um, you know, every time there was some sort of award thing, we'd be afraid that we wouldn't win and then afraid we would win. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Because if you win, you have to go up on There stuff. you go. You have to talk. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, you try to say something a little different every time. Um, Yes. 
and again, for Larry, it was exhausting for him. He just, by the end of that, those three months or whatever it was, he, uh, he said, I hope we never get nominated for an Oscar ever again. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you know, that's, I kind of understand how you feel because we looked at photographs of ourselves in January and then photographs in March. <laughs> we look like we'd, you know, been on a cattle drive across the country or something. It's ridiculous. Like it was before and after pictures of the presidents. You know, there, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, their gray hair and yeah, and you know all those films were so great, and I, I hated seeing the people lose. It was really difficult to be in this group of people with such great films, and you know it was great to win and win and win. But it was, I I tend to um, absorb the people's uh, emotions and and moods that are around me. Mm. That's why I'm, I kind of don't like to go to parties and that kind of thing. So it was difficult for me because I was, if I started looking at people, I started to feel really sad. Oh, so it was, it was hard. Uh, well, I wouldn't know about that. I, I never got that. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what was, what was great about you was you were very real and you're very friendly and you, um, you're kind of, I guess the best way to put it, you're kind of tough, Josh, you know, and I, and I, um, I just felt like if things got weird, I could go, kind of go stand over next to you and I'd be okay, you know. Things did get weird, too. Oh, it was, yeah. Uh, Boy, did they. But it was strange, too, because we, we were, what was, uh, God, it's still, this isn't insane. We, uh, Clooney was there for, uh, was it Good Night and Good Luck? Yes. I think, and, and that was, you know, as a writer. So it was kind of weird because here we all are, you know, shuffling and trying to trying to, you know, put a sentence together in front of the camera and 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 look sharp and then you know then you cut to george clooney <laughs> yeah he's an actor and charming and you know all of that and knows how to speak in front of yeah. people yeah he uh he essentially ignored me oh no um uh when i we were in venice and um you know we won the golden lion and and he came into the green room and ang and i were in there and ang had wanted me to get up on the stage and talk because i'm italian you know, did Steve, and I was like horrified. I was like, you want me to get that? I don't think, you know, I said, that's all right. And uh, so when he came to the green room, he, it was like I wasn't even there. We were standing oh. right next to each other. He walked over to Aang and said, congratulations, blah, 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 goodbye. Yes. And then when we won the Producers Guild Award, right? I won the Producers Guild Award because I was a producer. Yeah. And we were out in the hallway trying to get out of there. And here he, it's me and Larry, and here he comes again around the corner. And he saw us, and he walked right up to Larry, and he said, congratulations. Larry looked at him and said, why are you congratulating me? I didn't win anything. She won the, <laughs> she won the award, because <laughs> that's wow. Larry, you know? And, yeah. and he was so embarrassed. He was just flustered. And didn't, it, it, at that point, he didn't know what to say. So. Oh no! I, oh, I hate hearing that because I, I, the one um, uh, thing that really dazzled me about him is he had that skill that I guess Bill Clinton has, where um, he seemed able to remember every name of every person he had met. And uh, yeah, he's very charming. Yeah, I mean, I had maybe you know we had a few encounters. I think we had a drink one night at, before the Baftas, and. But, you know, all told, if I spent an hour and 20 minutes of my life actually engaged with George Clooney, that would be the most of it. And, you know, five or six years later, I was walking in the hallway 
uh, I think at Warner Brothers one day, and I saw Clooney coming towards me with a bunch of people. And I'm not that, like, I don't expect that a guy who's a movie star who is in the interim met 15 million people is going to remember me. So I didn't say anything. I'm walking in the hall and he's coming the other way. And George reaches out and taps me on the shoulder. He goes, hey, Josh, you just going to ignore me? <laughs> and I'm telling you, you will kill for someone like that. Well, that's so nice. That's really <laughs> yeah, nice. I know, I know, I know. It's, you know, I'm sorry. I, um, Larry and I actually had a creative meeting with him some years back mm -hmm. in, the, in the late 90s. Um, he wanted us to write a film for him. And I remember in the meeting, um, mm -hmm. well, Larry and I went in, we sat down, and we, uh, he started asking us questions. And I think about five minutes in, I began to answer one of the questions. And he looked at me like, why are you speaking? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm not like a famous person, right. uh, and I it's not a it's not a, 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 such a it's not important to me. But on the other hand, you know I am Larry's writing partner. Larry asked asked me to write with him. It wasn't like something I you know auditioned for. And <laughs> out of respect for Larry, Larry was pretty pissed off when we left. Oh, you know because that's yeah. that's. He's not like that at all, Larry. Yeah. And the fact that you know, he said that, you know, he, here's what Larry said. He said, well, you know, he's kind of a serial monogamous. <laughs> and I said, I see. OK. And he said, you know, women, I don't think he's interested in women, really. And I said, well, that's OK, too. But this wasn't about me being a woman. This is about me being a writer. Yeah. So anyway, that was the extent of that. I, I wish uh, I had better. I wish I had better stories to tell about him. I know. I'm sorry to hear that. We are uh, uh, here with uh, Diana Asana, um, and uh, uh, you didn't just just uh, write uh, Brokeback Mountain. You 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 you're as you say, you were a producer on it, and you're the one you found the story, correct? Yes, Is that my recollection. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I that, um, that movie. Because of you. I read the short story. A close friend of mine gave it to me, and. Um, yeah. I read the story. I was stunned. Um, it's slightly different than the version that Annie uh, uh, published in her collection of short stories. The only difference is in the collection, she added this prologue. It's a italicized prologue. Ennis is old. He's woken up from a wet dream, essentially. So you kind of know, know going into it what the story's about. Mm. But when we read that version, the first version in The New Yorker, that prologue wasn't in there. She put that in about a year later and sent it to us and asked us what we thought. And we said, it doesn't need that. What was great about the story was you're going along, reading along, and about a third of the way in, these two young men end up in the, the tent together. And everything just takes this geologic shift. It's 1963, they're 19, they're ranch hands, they're in Wyoming and they fall in love. And you know, you know, this is not, this probably won't end well. Yep. But, you know, at that point, it, all of a sudden the story just takes off and, and I couldn't, I was just like crazed reading it. Got to the end, we wept and fell asleep. I have insomnia. Got up the next morning. Uh, read it again because I thought, oh, that's one of those middle of the night crazy things, you know, where everything is amplified. And it affected me even more. And I went downstairs and asked Larry to read it. And at first he said, I'm not going to read a short story. And I said, why not? He says, because I can't write them. I have no interest in them. And I said, well, you're going to read this one. 
So he took it upstairs, read it, came down, and was really quiet, which is unusual for him. And uh, I said, what would you think? And he said, well, it's the best short story I've read in The New Yorker since Flannery O'Connor. Wow. And I said, well, what do you think about, would you write a, would you consider writing a script with me? And he said, and I swear to God, up to that point, Larry had never agreed with me about something instantly. He had to be talked into it. He's contrary and difficult, and he's the most stubborn human I've ever known. He said, yes. He goes, yes. And I said, wow. And I, of course, since then, it's been just like it always was before. But <laughs> we wrote Annie a little fan letter that day, just a single page. We loved your story. Would you consider optioning it to us to write a script? And about a week later, we got a letter, and it, all it said was, um, you know, I don't see a film here, but have at it. Right. I'll have my people call your people, and that was that. And so that's how that kind of happened. We wrote the script. Larry checked out. He said, I'm done. You go figure out how to get this made. And eight years later, you know, I was, I met you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I, I just want to go back to one thing before we get into it. You, you say, so, so even though it came out the way it did, you still have to argue with Larry about what to work on. Is that what you're saying? You you didn't get any points from him for. Uh, well, Larry, you know, I mean, he completely acknowledged that I did a great job. He said, oh, sure. and when we'd get interviewed, you know, he he would say to people, "Look, you you." And when they start asking about Brokeback, he would just point to me and say, "You need to talk to her about it because I don't, you know, I don't really know that much about what happened." <laughs> And and even I think in one of his biographies, autobiographies, he says that, you know, to find out more about Brokeback, you'll have to check in with Diana. Wow. Huh. So. Fantastic. Well, I realize, you know, it, I don't know if we ever talked movies while we were uh, on that circuit. So um, the show. I, uh, just a little bit. We did. We talked about yeah, movies. I don't have yeah. a huge sense of your taste at all. So I thought it'd be fun to bring you in here and put you on the spot and make you talk to us about uh, the movies that have you know, inspired you, made you? Oh my God. You know, um, my, my taste is just, it's all over the map. Um, I love film. Yeah. I just love it. I mean, I started watching movies seriously when I was a little girl, you know, the late show and the late, late show. And the late, late show was great because it always had the older movies, mm -hmm. you know, the thirties movies, like the pre-code movies that were kind of wild. Yeah. And uh, I would go through the TV guide every week for young people that don't know what that is. It came with the Sunday paper. <laughs> and I would mark the films that had, I would get on a binge for, with certain actors. And I would mark the ones that had those actors, you know, like George Raft or, or um, Rock Hudson or Ann Sheridan, somebody, you know, or Gene Harlow, whoever. And I would make a point of getting up and watching those because I would wait until everybody went to bed. Mm -hmm. Everybody was in bed by 9.30. At 10.30, the late show came on. At midnight, the late, late show came on. And I did this on school nights because I just was not a sleeper, you know? I just wasn't. And I would get so excited. I'd, and I'd be able to go in and watch these movies all by myself. So I had a, a, a real, I think, education just from watching film on television. And then when I, in the 60s, uh, when I was in high school, I got a job working at a movie theater. Oh, cool. I it's the Fox, the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And so I saw, I mean, it was ridiculous. I saw um, 
who's afraid of Virginia Woolf 140 times or something. And the, the James Bond movies, you know, to where you could just recite the dialogue as it was coming up, um, answering the phones and, and saying, uh, good evening, Arthur Enterprises. And then they'd ask you what time, what movies were showing and what times. You know, it was a, it was a theater with five balconies. You know, and, and it had was it um, a gigantic theater or it was a gigantic theater and it was it had great big red velvet curtains that came across, you know, the, the screen and would open up before the film began. And during between the films on the weekends, Stan can would come up from this. He would come up from in front of the screen on this big platform and play the organ between films. Wow. It was it was pretty great. Yeah. So it was a whole lot different than now. It was just a. Um, I, I'm so happy that I grew up during that time and got to see film that way because it was a real experience, you know? Yeah. And I, and I could sit on my, the third, I was on the third balcony. I could turn my little seat around and I, and it, there was almost not a bad seat in that theater. You could, the screen was so huge and you could see the whole film from where I was sitting. And of course the sound was terrific. So you could hear everything and, you know, so that's kind of, been um i guess my background yeah with film uh that's amazing i i can't i'm still trying to figure, so were the balconies on top of each other i don't know why well I'm they were up. tiered you know and they got right. smaller as you went up got it and if you were you know on, on the fifth when you practically needed oxygen it was small when <laughs> it was a small balcony but you know they, they were tiered so that you didn't have you weren't looking at, at people in front of you or behind you kind of thing. Right. So it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately I sort of missed that. Um, uh, as I was going to movie theater age, they were starting to split the theaters in half and, you know, turn them into multiplexes. Oh so yeah, would, that's, yeah. That's right. I would go to the places where you could see the remnants of what used to be that kind of grandeur, but now they were all chopped up into shoeboxes. So. You know, Larry, um, Larry never, he saw some B and C films in Archer City at the Royal Theater, you know, that's in the last picture show. Mm -hmm. They didn't really have, uh, he saw Red River there, actually. But um, oh. uh, he didn't really get to see film on a, on a big screen until he went away to college. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't have a, a television, you know, when he was growing up. He grew up in, a, in that little tiny town of about 1,800 people. and. Uh, so his experience, his experience with film really came with HUD, you know, his first novel when it was adapted into the movie HUD, For Some Best Buy, with Paul Newman. Yeah. yeah and yeah. He, went, he went on the set um, just for a couple of days. He thought it was just a bizarre experience, you know. I'm sure. I can't imagine. Having and he told me, that's what he told me. He said, you know, Diana, they're not going to want us on the set. And I said, why? He said, they're afraid of the writers. I said, really? He said, yes. And I said, well, I, he said, they're afraid. I think that uh, if they've changed something that you're going to have a fit or um, he said, on, and also I think that they're a little intimidated because they, if they were writers, they'd have written it themselves. So. Uh, well, Joe, you're, you're, uh, you're you're good with writers, is my I like, understanding. I like having writers. <laughs> I, I think it's. I try to put them in the movie because you know the the company almost never pay to have the writer fly out to the set. So my, my first couple of pictures, uh, I got John Sales to come out uh, to Texas 
to play a, a Marine guard for one night so that I could have him hang around for a week and we could, you know, work on the script with the actors and stuff. And I've always found it to be very uh, exciting to have a writer around. Well, and it's interesting because the actors love it. Yeah. You know, they, they just love it. And so do the rest of the crew, really. You know, they can kind of check in with you if they have a question about something or authenticity. They can check in with you. Yeah, I think maybe some directors are threatened by the idea that somebody else, somebody would go to somebody else, you know. And oh, boy, are they ever. Them. <laughs> I've, I've definitely had that experience. I mean, I've produced four miniseries. And uh, the directors were always a handful. Hmm. Um, I was, you know, I was very respectful though. And even Aang on Brokeback, he was, um, he was just sort of, Aang is, is really essentially a cinematographer. He really is, is consumed with how it looks. Uh And so he doesn't talk to the actors, you know, during production. Yeah. He just leaves them, leaves them, leaves them essentially to their own devices. And, but, and, and I would, sometimes I'd have to tell them, look, He'll talk to you if you've done something wrong. You know, just consider that everything is good. It's like no news is good news. Just do, you know, come in and do your job and, and you know, consider him like a stern father. He expects you to come in and behave and, you know, and then go home. He'll only pay attention to you when you're bad. Is that the... <laughs> that was what I, I didn't know. You know, I mean, I was trying to reinforce, uh, I, you know, give them some support. and. There wasn't much. I mean, they were so good, all of the young people, yeah. and they were so young, uh, but so terrific and really, really knew their stuff. So, yeah, yeah, you definitely lucked out with a, an amazing cast in that one. Um, but uh, yeah, do you want to walk us through some of the movies? Sure. Uh, um, yeah, I made. I kind of had to make a list, and I, yes. I just, I was because there's so many films that I really love, and I had to. I just had to kind of think, okay, what comes up when I'm thinking? So I will, you want me to just start? Or you want me to read the, you the whole list? No, no, just oh, like, no, no. I'll go one at a time. Okay. Well, the, the first one is, was a silent film, a black and white silent film. And it's Battleship Potemkin. And I'm sure you know the film. Oh, oh yeah. It's, it was such a, was such a powerful film for me. Um, I love, I love um, drama and I love, uh, you know, intense movies. Um, I love comedies too, but, you know, when I was younger, uh, this is a film that really affected me. Um, you know, the Odessa steps sequence, you know, with the baby carriage rolling down the steps and the troops marching. And um, it was just, uh, it was just really powerful for me. It made me feel a lot of different feelings. And it taught me something. One of the reasons I love to watch films is I like to learn about people's lives that are completely different than mine. It, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm traveling, you know, I'm traveling, getting yeah. a taste of another culture or different beliefs are, you know, these men in Russia in the early 1900s, it was, uh, it was, um, it made a huge impression on me. Um, Where did you see it the first time? Um, I saw it in a in a theater. I'm trying to remember in a theater in St. Louis, one of the indie theaters that showed mm-hmm. these kind of films. Um, there, there were 
theaters back then, the Varsity and the Tivoli, they were called. And I think the Tivoli now shows nothing but independent film. They would they showed, uh, you know, the contemporary popular films, of course. But um, then they sort of branched off and began to show these old movies, independent films. And uh, it was a, it was uh, I just thought it was really interesting to go see a black and white film with no dialogue, you know, and just with music. And it also it, it, everything in silent films, you know, the acting is kind of exaggerated because they can't talk. And, and so I loved that, that whole um, notion that these people were up there on the, on the screen, not able to talk and had to convey so much just through their bodies and their faces. So I found that fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, who was it? Was it? Was it um, yeah, it was Roger, right, Joe? Who sort of? Yes, Roger Corman chose that favorite movie. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> yep. I love Roger Corman. Oh, I think he's yeah. great. You're you're in good company. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I have there are a couple of um. When I was a little girl, and I remember watching certain films that really had an impression on me. Um, yeah. Some of them were melodramas. Uh, my childhood was hell, and we don't need to go into that. But and I'm sure a lot of people's were hell, and they they escaped through books or film, and that's pretty much what I did. Watching those films really, um, uh, they let my imagination run. Mm-hmm. You know, because after I'd watched them, I would I would start I would think about them and think about them and think about those people's lives and imagine them in the places that they were, which was way far away from where I was, and and. Uh, Film noir was great too. I mean, that I right. got my first, my first real, the the film that made a real impression on me, um, film noir wise, was an old film. Uh, it was a 1940s Raoul Walsh film. Uh, they drive by night. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Do you know you know that film? Sure. It's so good. Um, it was and Idol Pino was in it, who I always thought was wonderful, um, and. Humphrey Bogart, George Raft. I was a big George Raft fan. I think before I was a Humphrey Bogart fan. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's unusual. Yeah, and you know, because he made a lot of '30s films. You know, '30s yeah. films and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, that was the film that that made a real impression on me. Alan Hale Senior was in that film too. He played. I think he played Ida Lupino's husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the one that was the she was the bad girl, the really bad girl. Right. Yes. Um, so that was one of my first film noirs that I remember. Yeah, um, that's a great one. And did you see that? I mean, did were all these in theaters then? Was I saw that theater? on television? On television, okay. you know, in the late late show probably. Um, yeah. yeah. And then there was a there was a movie there going to probably be a little few more movies than 10 on my list here. Um, there was another melodrama, I think, and I don't know if y'all are familiar with this. It was called King's Row. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. It was adapted from a novel. Oh, Reagan. It was, yeah. It was yep. adapted with great uh, delicacy from a novel that was considered too dirty and too horrible to yes. screen, and they had to make a lot of sacrifices. Right. But that's what fascinated me as a little girl. Can you imagine I'm watching this and trying to figure out what are all these secrets and what do they mean? 
you know, the the daughter that was hidden in the house and, and the mother that was in the attic and, you know, all of that. And uh, it, it made me, um, it made me really interested in the complexities of life. You know, how, how life could become, adult life mm-hmm. could become so complex and so twisted up and, and, and confusing and dark. And that was, that's, in fact, when that film comes on now, I, was, I watch it again. Well, it's a really well-made film, and, and you know, it's it's one of those things that you can just tune into at any point and go, oh yeah, I, and it, it's 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 beautiful to look at. It's William Cameron Menzies, and uh, and it's got you know Claude Rains is having incest with his daughter, except, yes. except you have to sort of divine that because that was in the book. But they yeah, they really kind of they, at it. if you if you read the book, a hint at it, but it, they really suppress it. You know, yeah. and I kept thinking that oh, I'm watching it. What is going on with those two? Um, <laughs> And I have a friend who's staying with me here during the um, the quarantine, and uh, he just ended up here. He uh, his daughter is back in New York State, upstate New York, and he has not been able to go back and see her. Um, so he's been kind of stuck here with me watching films. And I made him sit down and watch that with me after it had started one day, one afternoon. We was showing. I think it was on. I don't know if it was on Turner. I can't remember. It was probably on Turner because I can't imagine where else it would be. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, he's not—he's uh, not a melodrama type at all. But he got sucked right in. He got sucked right into that film. So that made me. Happy. I, I think I saw that in a film course in my brief tenure. Uh, in, really? In film school? Yeah, yeah. Because and we were all sort of. Um, you know, it was during the Reagan years, so there was this real resistance. Where I was like, "No, no, no! This is this is the good one. This is the good one." He was actually really good in that film. He's really good he in was. it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, the the line where he's, uh, yeah, you know, when he wakes up and he realizes his legs are gone. Where's the rest of me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a not a not a not a great move for people who are afraid of doctors. No, <laughs> no, and. Uh, um, it's funny in a previous life before I began, you know, screenwriting, um, I worked in the law and we had a, one of the attorneys that I worked for, I ran his office. Um, we, we sued doctors. Oh, <laughs> must've been a thriving business. Some, I have stories that would make a TV series. The malpractice uh, and the, you know, the, oh, yeah. Talk about drama. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yes, that, that, that guy was, yeah, he was a real candidate for medical malpractice. Um, I guess the, one of the, the next movie I listed um, was a Western. Yay. And I, you know, when I was a little girl, again, I watched all the all the tv westerns you know uh, uh brandon and paladin and uh maverick and um the you know some of the really obscure ones i think paladin um have gun will travel was my favorite because i loved his i loved that character mm. you know he was talking about a uh morally ambiguous you know, that's the, I, I like that kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. the next film, Oxbow Incident, is talk about oh. morally ambiguous. Um, 
And I, you know, when it comes on, I watch it again. I watch it over again. The performances are fantastic. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Dana Andrews. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, a, he's been in so many films playing different roles, but he's a complicated guy. And yeah. even in real life, he was pretty complicated. Um, you know, and he's the guy that gets the, he gets hung. Um, he spoiler played alert. a, yeah, he played, <laughs> he played a good guy, you know, spoiler alert is right. But there were, you know, and, and it's more, I mean, it's much more, you know, there's much more going on than just that. But the whole thing about assuming guilt before you really have all the information, boy. It's a, it's a great movie. And it got, it only got made because uh, William Wellman, uh, Dow Rosanik wanted William Wellman to make um, a picture called Buffalo Bill with Joel McRae, which turned out to be an awful picture. But in order to do it, he said, I'll do it if you let me do the Oxbow incident. And that, that's why mm. it was made very cheaply on the back lot. And it's almost all indoors and a set. Uh, but it's got a great cast. And it, it's such a fabulous movie. Um, Henry Fonda and Anthony Quinn is in there. Yeah. 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 yeah he's the, he is the Mexican. And, and uh, the, the, the scene at the end where Fonda reads the letter that Danny oh. is going to send to his wife. And, and, and the way it's oh. framed is that uh, the, uh, the hat of um, Harry um, Morgan is cutting off uh, frame uh, is framing out Fonda's eyes. So you can't see his eyes when he reads it. And it's, mm. it's incredibly clever and, and powerful and simple. Yes. You know, film, a film, I'll mention this one quickly, you know, Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda. Sure. That was on a month ago, I think. And when I watched when I watched it this last time, the, the black and white and the way it was filmed and the shadows were just incredible. Talk about genius. Um, and I feel like in the Oxford incident, and, you know, we know it's on a set, but the story is so engaging, you forget that. Well, I think they had to do that because it's all at night. And they, well, and, and, and they would have had to make the picture at night. It would have taken them forever. Right. And, and also, um, think about this. It was 1943. Um, you know, they didn't like to make films with, you know, a bad ending. They just, the, the, they still don't today. They don't like, they don't yeah, like the set. But this was during the war. You really were supposed to be trying to cheer up everybody. That's right. <laughs> that movie exactly. didn't cheer up anybody. Exactly. And so, um, you know, I can see why a film like that would be really difficult to get made. Mm-hmm. But we got it. Yes, it was beautiful. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and, and to back to, oh, sorry. Ahead, I say, Josh, Dana, no, say? no, no, I, I, I share your thing. Dana Andrews is so interesting to me because he was one of those guys that you know, kind of early on as a kid, you'd be like, oh, that guy, because he's very, what, he's just sort of traditionally handsome looking mm-hmm. and kind of stolid and he never gives these kind of rip snorting look at me performances but yeah i just find as i get older and older i, I uh, uh he's he's so good in so many films uh, well and laura, his performance and, if you watch these films like laura it's cumulative you know you start the film and you begin yeah you know, at first you think he's one way and then he's turns shifts and turns and he's something yeah. totally different than what you thought at the beginning yeah, and um, yeah, no, he's, he's just incredible. Where the Sidewalk Ends is another favorite of mine with him. Uh, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, I think I mentioned this film to you at one point, Josh, somewhere, somehow. The Day of the Triffids. Oh, yeah. That English movie, the science oh, yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That made a huge impression on me. And, you know, the, I think it was in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. You see that in the theater? Yes, I was 13. Yeah, that sounds like a one of the age. <laughs> one of the first films I saw in the theater. The very first film I saw in the theater was Moby Dick um, with my dad. I don't know why he took me to that film. Uh, and I had ever since had a tremendous fear of dark water. <laughs> Talk about a film making an impression on you. Um, But Day of the Triffids, I went to see with some friends and we were terrified, you know, being 13 years old and seeing these huge plants that eat people and uh, And make everybody blind, which is is always a bummer. (laughs) And then people would, you know, later on, after the movie, I remember we were talking and I said, well, you know, if we had to le- lose one of our senses, which would be the one, you know, that you could live without? And nobody said blindness. Nobody. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, you know, was interesting about that. Um, as the years went on, and that because that film made such an impression on me, I, uh, I started to, I paid attention. You know, there, was, there were radio ad- adaptations of that, of that mm-hmm. novel. I think two or three different ones. Um, and I, oh, and I, the BBC, uh, TV series. Yeah. There was, was a mini series, I think. Yeah. And it, with, they found a couple with, times. with, this, with uh, obviously a little bit more money than they had to make the first picture, but, uh, yeah. it's really, it's really quite good. Yeah. And there was a, a kind of a not so good sequel, not night of the Triffids, I think it was called. Hmm. And, uh, oh, really? yes, yes. I think that was in, that was in the early two thousands. Um, now, Joe, are you talking about the the because uh, there was two BBC? There was a BBC version in the eighties, and then there was one in like two thousand and nine. Yeah, I was thinking of the one from the eighties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sort of remember that. Yeah. I. What is it about that movie? I remember seeing the movie, and then you know, as a kid, and then having to read the book, and you know, chowing down on that, and then yeah, the radio thing, and there was a there was a black and white Marvel comic adaptation of it. I think. Well, that, just, that's true of John Wyndham's books, though. I mean, they're they're you know, how many times have they made Village of the Damned? I mean, they, they his stuff is is just it's still good. You know, yes. a lot yeah, of really something stuff. about it that's really compelling. And uh, um, yeah, I, there's also that thing about those those you know those British country towns. I don't know what it is. They're, uh-huh. they're 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 such cheerful little dull places when you drive through them, but but they're so evocative and so great in in movies, you know. And every fourth episode of the old Avengers TV show, they yes. you know, they come to some little town and something very strange is happening there in between all the tea that they're drinking. The, the, <laughs> did, did you say the Avengers? Yeah, the Avengers yes. TV show. Yeah, um, yeah. Diana Rigg is Larry's oh. heartthrob. Oh really? Yes. Oh, mine too. In fact, I, I mine too. I, I think, printed yeah, pic- I think some pictures for him to stick up above his desk, and <laughs> gaze at her. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm a big science fiction fan, and so oh, I think yeah. that that uh, 
seeing that film so young, I spent a lot of my teenage years, my reading years, grabbing every piece of science fiction I could get my hands on. Hmm. Talk about something that stimulated your imagination. You know, the yeah, like Arthur C. Clarke and Childhood's End and uh, Robert Heinlein and Harlan Ellison, who was amazing and dark, dark and hard, you know, his, his stories. Um, and that, that for me, uh, I think I probably, mm-hmm. I probably read every science fiction short story and book that existed in my teenage years. Because I was a rapid reader, and I read, I read um, when I was li- when I was in grade school, I'd read you know ten or eleven books in a couple of weeks. And you were up all night. I wonder. Yeah, yeah. and my and Larry's was the same way. When I met Larry, he had stacks of books, you know, next to his bed, five or six, which is exactly how my life has always been. I had five or six yeah. different ones going at once. But that that day of the trip is the John Wyndham novel it that inspired me in my teenage years to really get into science fiction yeah no it's a great um um i'm gonna mention somebody and i don't know joe how you feel about um about douglas sirk i love douglas sirk in the in the 50s yeah and my friend will who's here i made him watch some douglas sirk films when they'd start out, he'd look at me and go, really? Well, sometimes yeah. people don't get the irony. Yeah, and, yeah. and the fact that, um, you know, the kind of emotion, the, 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 the exaggerated emotions in those films, I think they inspired some, a lot of the filmmakers in the 70s. Written um, on the Wind and uh, Magnificent Obsession. Written on the Wind is crazy. It's an that opera. film is crazy. One of my, with, with one of Dorothy, my favorite oh, movies. Dorothy Malone? Yes. Oh, my Stucking God. That oil, Derek. Oh. Yes, yeah, stroking her oil. Derek. Oh, my God. Well, you and, know, Almodovar is very, very, uh, very big on Cirque. And, and uh, oh, yeah. there's a whole lot of uh, European directors, particularly, who love that, that period of, of Cirque's stuff. You know, um, you know who else was influenced by him was John Waters. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, yeah, he yeah. loved him. I mean, he loved the sort of, you know, those melodramas. Um, yeah. But again, that those were, you know, extreme examples of people's lives that weren't like mine. You know, these adults that were, uh, you know, I used to wonder when I was when I was a kid, I think, God, how could they be that much in love with somebody and act that ridiculous? You know, <laughs> I just I didn't get it. Of course, I didn't the hor- I didn't get the hormones yet. So. Um, but now, looking at them now, you know, when I, now that I'm older, and introducing a per- someone to them, even though he was sort of, you know, rolling his eyes and that kind of thing, he couldn't stop watching them because yeah. you need to see, you want to see what happens to these people. And a you lot just, of them, are, a lot of them are remakes of pictures from the '30s because when mm-hmm. he got the Universal, they said let's dust off some of those old John Stahl pictures that they would Claudia mm-hmm. there and remake those. And uh, and and some some of them are remakes and some of them are not. My, my favorite is uh, a picture called uh, "There's Always Tomorrow." Yes, Dan Wick and Frederick Murray. Yes, in which in which her uh, he's 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 married to to Joan Bennett, but he's but he meets uh, his old flame, uh, and they are obviously very attracted to each other. And his kids, who are always portrayed as horrible 
thankless beasts in, in certain movies do everything they can do to destroy their relationship. Well, then isn't that pretty much all that heaven allows? That's yeah. what happens. Oh, that's in, the it's thing. A yeah. theme. Those horrible yeah. kids. When they give her know? the television. Their mother's yeah. one, you know, her last chance for some happiness. And then, you know, they, they diss her, him and their relationship. And then they wind up just sort of going on with their own lives. So she really, it was right. like a, why? Yeah. You know, a waste, just a wasted chance trying to please her children or not offend her children or whatever. You know, you're there, you, you're angry, yeah. you're rooting for her, you're, you know. And Rock Hudson, I have to say, that man was deadly handsome. <laughs> and more and more of an actor, more of an actor than we thought at the time because exactly. of really acting, you know. Exactly. You know, and yeah. I find that that's common in Hollywood, that very, very good looking uh, actors and actresses, people tend to discount them because they're so good looking. You know, Brad Pitt, I think, is a perfect example of that. I've seen him in a couple of roles that I was pretty astounded by. Yeah. Um, I just saw 12 Monkeys again. Oh, he's great in that. Isn't he amazing? Yeah. Yes. He's so good. And uh, in fact, that leads me into Brazil is one of my absolute favorite films. Oh, my God. Oh, fantastic. You know, I love Terry Gilliam. And Larry and I were lucky enough to work with Terry for a couple of years. Oh, wow. On what? Um, we were adapting Larry's novel, Anything for Billy. For Terry Gilliam? Yes, for Terry. Have you read that book? Doing, doing a Billy the Kid movie? Did you read the book? Yes. <laughs> the book is, um, it's, a, it's a satire of a dime novel. You know, the chapters are two yeah. or three pages long, and everything is very exaggerated in it, and um, just like a dime novel. And it's essentially, it's a, it's a story about, um, it, 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 on the surface, that's what it is. But it's really about the difference between life experiences and the imagination. Writers who pull things from their imagination that they've never experienced, as opposed to writers, you know, it's like they tell you, there's this stupid uh, cliche, write what you know. Why would you want yeah. to, why would you want to write what you know? <laughs> exactly. And and what is that anyway? I know. And then and wouldn't it be more fun to write what you don't know? So <laughs> so uh you know and the and the um protagonist Ben Sippy has been writing dime novels. Right at the very beginning of the book, you know this right away. He's in he's back he's in Philadelphia writing dime novels. And he wants to his awful family, he wants to get away from them. And he decides to go west have the real experience and thinks that's going to make his writing even better right and the long and short of it after all his adventures is it's not what happens um but he meets billy the kid immediately and he's not like any billy the kid that in any of the other films he's a pretty dark young man he's a psychopath and he's but he's portrayed as this a very appealing young man that you fall in love with Mm-hmm. And Sippy falls in love with him. And that's, you know, then you just go on through the book. But Terry wanted to do it in a sort of a heightened way, you know, take, take the exaggerated part of it being a dime novel and heighten right. it visually. And it was a lot of fun working with Terry. Um, although I have to say that he and Larry have the attention spans of gnats. <laughs> and when we, we'd be in the, in the hotel in New York, um, 
you know, we all three would get, you know, get this really nice hotel room to write, work on the script. And about 15 minutes in, those two would sort of wander off to the, be looking out the windows at Central Park. And I'd have to herd them back to the table. Hey, 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 hey. You know, so, but he was, uh, he's a, just a wonderful man. Um, we even visited him in London and he's so different from, you'd think he was just insane, right? Because his films are just so wildly, you know, imaginative. Yeah. He leads a very conventional life. He has a wife, a lovely wife, uh, lovely children, a very sort of traditional, conventional home. But his, his life, we were sort of startled how conventionally he lives. But it was refreshing in the sense that it made you know that everything in his, that all of that comes right out of his crazy imagination, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I well, love interesting because I, I, I'd always been, and then of course you see like the the various documentaries about you know uh, there's the Twelve Monkeys doc, and of course there's a doc about um, and the La Mancha mm-hmm. uh, uh, thing. And um, in fact, I remember meeting the guys who had shot those documentaries, mm-hmm. and um, we had a hilarious conversation because uh, they they asked me, they said, "Is there any director you just absolutely kill to work with?" And I said, "Well, Gilliam, but I'm afraid the experience would be so insane." I'd you know, lose my mind and, you know, want to, want to kill him or myself. And they laughed. And I said, why? Well, he said, he said, well, there's the one filmmaker that we most would love to do a documentary about is David Cronenberg. And the problem is his sets are so smooth and the productions are so smooth that it'll be the most boring doc ever. So <laughs> they didn't want to work with my guy because, you know, he's too normal and I didn't want to work with theirs because he's, <laughs> but, but you're saying he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a normal guy. He's, he's lovely. He's lovely, and he's actually love to hear that. he's a very sweet man, um, and he has a very strong sense of what he wants oh, yeah. to do. Very strong, and um, you have to admire him for that. Yeah. He work has worked really hard to get his films made. I mean, and his big dream was to make the Don Quixote. You know, yep, the the film about Sancho, yeah, and the Don. Yep. Larry and I just, you know, when Larry and I describe ourselves, we, he'll tell, first time he said this, he said, well, we're kind of like uh, Sancho and the Don. He said, but we trade places. I was going to say, which is which? Yeah, okay. he said, we trade places <laughs> depending on the, the conversation, you know. Sounds like a good collaboration. Yeah. But uh, Brazil, and I, I love 12 Monkeys. We got to see a, an early cut of it. You know, Terry, oh, really? Terry wanted oh, us cool. to see it, to give him, help him with notes and the story and all that it was just yeah we thought it was pretty terrific yeah it's a, it's a lovely film oh and fisher king makes breaks my heart yeah you know for all kinds of reasons fisher king's one of those movies i'm 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 a real i'm a hardcore writer uh person and i i tend to think that pretty much every movie is as good as it is it's never quite as good as the script and Fisher King is one of those ones that always felt to me like it's actually probably a bit better than the script because sort of in just the bare bones narrative of it, it's mm-hmm. this kind of ordinary sort of yuppie redemption thing mm-hmm. that, that there were a lot of those at the time and they were all kind of annoying, but it's just so heightened in that film. It becomes something else entirely. It's so heightened because of the, that Robin Williams character, you know, yeah. and, and who would have thought makes you see homeless people. A lot differently. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although I've always felt sorry for them. Yeah. I'm always, no, it's, it's I'm always one. giving them money. Oh, that's right. It's got that great, remember the great speech, the Tom Waits speech mm -hmm. about a sort of traffic sign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, skipping right to backwards a little bit to Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. I could watch that thing over. And, and I, you know, there. My nieces and nephews, uh, there, there are four of them, and before the quarantine, they'd come over every Friday and we would introduce them to films that they'd never seen. They range in age from 20 to 27, mm. and the 20-year-old the is majoring in film. And so we, well, we show them films they've never seen before. And one of them was Dr. Strangelove, right before, at the beginning of this year. How did they go over? Well, my one my one nephew was a little confused by it, Josh. But Josh is a very sort of uh, down to earth, very literal young man, you know. Um, so we had to talk about a lot about it the next uh, Friday that they came over. Um, but everybody else loved it. They just thought it was wild, and they were fascinated yeah. by the fact that Peter Sellers played all those characters. So they became Peter Sellers fans. Which I, which I just, I just loved that, you know? So I could recommend a bunch of movies for them to watch with Peter Sellers. Yeah. Yes. And, and they're a great rabbit hole. And I remember, you know, the first time I saw it was, um, was in St. Louis. Uh, there was a, I used to go to the Cinerama with my friends and it wasn't at the Cinerama. It just reminded me that I saw 2001 Space Odyssey at that Cinerama. And I never, I didn't think that that was a, a particularly uh, great film at the time. But the visuals in that movie, I felt like I was on acid. Mm -hmm. and, although I had never taken acid, but I had a friend with me who was on acid. <laughs> My friend Dougie, um, we went to see it there. Uh, and those visual, you know, those, the visuals, those, whatever those effects were that they did with the lights and everything, they were almost hypnotizing. And I remember, you know, thinking to myself, what kind of special effects? Are these special effects? What is going on here? You know, with the sets and all of that business. Yeah. But um, yeah, I saw Dr. Strangelove. I'm sorry. I just went off on a tangent. My brain is, I'm going here and there. Um, Dr. Strangelove, I saw it at, at a traditional theater and thought it was the, it, it was so, it was such a dark comedy. And I found myself thinking, you know, because it was about Russia. And as a child, you know, we were hiding under our desks, right. thinking about, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, all of that. That was profound, by the way, being a kid. You never forget that. And so yeah. seeing that movie, you know, I was, Gosh, I was 15 when I saw it past the, you know, that scare, but still, that was still there, you know, the Russian thing. Um, and it kind of, it really lightened the fear about all that. Just that kind great, of. just with, with the mockery. He yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Gives you a whole yeah. new perspective about it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's a real education, I thought. Um, and of course, in the, you know, 
when we get into the 70s, there's so many amazing films in the 70s. My God. Um, the Deer Hunter had such an effect on me. My, my first husband had gone to Vietnam and uh, came back damaged uh, mentally. Mm. And he never recovered. Um, and so when I saw that film, I, I, it affected me for probably three months after I couldn't get it out of my head because it was the Christopher Walken character was so similar um, to what my husband had, had been through. Not that he was, you know, playing Russian roulette in, a, in the brothels of, of Vietnam, but when he came home, he was like, he was like night and day. He was such a, and he, he never recovered. We divorced a couple of years later. It was like, he was the love of my life. And uh, for me, it was my great tragedy, you know, that I lost him. But that film captured, captured all of that in a, in a really uh, affecting way for me. Um, the, other, the other films in the 70s, the Godfather films. I've heard of those. <laughs> uh, I, I love the second one. The second one is incredible. Um, and I had seen them. I had seen them, of course, on the big screen, and they were just fantastic. Being Italian, of course, that they had a, they were very affecting for me. Um, although I, you know, growing up, I kind of, I was offended by the fact that everybody thought Italians were in the mafia when I think two or three percent of them are. But uh, it sure, uh, it was a very romantic version of the of the mafia, and what why I mention it now in the, when I was thinking about movies and the movies that affected me so much, you know who Joe Bonanno was, right? The, mm -hmm. the gangster. Yeah, gangster. Sure, yeah. He was in Tucson in the late seventies and early eighties. And uh, I worked for an attorney after I came here, um, criminal lawyer who represented Joe. And Mr. B would come into the office, you know, he'd come in for his appointments and he'd sit, sit in the lobby and, and uh, you know, talk to me because he knew I was Italian. And he'd start bringing me flowers whenever he'd come for the, his appointments. And um, we talked about those films. Mm, holy cow. And yeah, and realized. Wow. I realized talking to him that. Um, I think Mario Puzo must have been influenced by Mr. B. You know, the yeah. Michael Corleone character and the five families yeah. and the disappearing because when Mr. B left New York, he came, was, he came to Tucson to sort of hide out. Hmm. So anyway, uh, to make a kind of a long story shorter, um, David, my boss, was so taken with the celebrity of, of Joe that he just couldn't help but talk too much about him to the press. And I, and oh, I kept no. telling him, David, you've got to stop. Mr. B is going to get mad. And then the last time he came into the office, he sat in the lobby and he talked to me and he said, he always called me sweetheart. He said, sweetheart, you know, David, he just have the big mouth, you know? And I said, I know I, I keep telling him he's got to shut up. <laughs> well, um, so that was the day he fired him. About six months later, uh, I got a phone call from 
from this other attorney in Tucson, and he, he was representing Mr. B. And he said, Diana, uh, come into my, I need you to come to the office. He said, Mr. B wants to have a talk with you. And I said, about what? And he says, well, I can't tell you over the phone. You need to come in. And uh, I, I said, okay. Well, he was always so sweet to me. You know, he was a killer. He was a murderer. But, but he was always so sweet to me. <laughs> and so I, I went over there. Well, it's okay. <laughs> I went over there in, uh, to Skip's office, and Mr. B was there. And he said, um, he said, listen, sweetheart, I am going to write my autobiography. And I need someone to type it for me. And I, there's nobody I trust, he said, but I would trust you. Oh, my God. Because I know that you, you won't, you won't, you know, divulge any of this to anybody. You, I can trust you. And Skip was there, you know, the lawyer. And I had known Skip through my boss. And I said, well, um, you got to tell me the circumstances. He said, well, you're going to have to come to my home. You'll have to come, you know, I said, well, the only time I can come is after work. You know, I got to get off work. He said, you have to come to my home and type it in my home. And you can't take anything away from my home, from the house. And uh, I said, well, what are you going to pay me to do this? He says, well, I'll pay cash. I said, great. How much? Well, at the time, you know, this was like the early 80s. And I was making, I think, uh, 700 a month gross money. And... Um, he said, I will give you $2,000 cash to type the manuscript. And I went, I'll do it. <laughs> that's, like, that's like three months of salary for me, four months of salary. So, um, and I was a really fast typist. I typed 120 words a minute with no mistakes. And so I went to his home and it only took, it took about three weeks to get it done. Did he dictate it? No, he wrote it. He hand wrote it on these yellow pads. And he had like this guy that was there that was like a ghostwriter, um, Sergio, this Sardinian man who could understand Sicilian. Because when Mr. B would talk sometimes, he would just slip into Sicilian and you didn't know what the hell he was saying. And so even when he was writing on the yellow pad, he'd write in English. And then mm -hmm. about a third of the way down, he'd have a, like this much in Sicilian. So it, uh, Sergio was the translator. Um, but I, it was, a, he, again, he was so sweet to me. His wife was lovely. His daughter came to visit. She invited me to her home, her home in California. There was no way I was ever going to go. Um, you know, I just wanted to do my job and, and get out of there. Um, Did the book ever come out? Yes. I'm looking at it right now. It's Is called A Man of Honor. A Man of Honor. A very ironic title. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, and I, I, uh, I remember uh, my roommate at the time, my daughter was little. She was a little girl. She was like five or six. And um, she would watch her in the evenings while I was doing this. And I'd call home and, and talk to Sarah. And one, one evening he came over to me and he, he whispered, he goes, sweetheart, you know, they're listening like that. <laughs> I said, like, I'm only talking to my little girl. You know, there's not, not saying anything. <laughs> so, um, but you know, the time came, we were all done. Um, he needed uh, a, a Xerox copy. And, uh, but he didn't want to, you know, he wasn't going to leave it anywhere. So I had to go to the Alpha Graphics and stand there while they copied it and gave it back to me. And at the end of the, the time, 
that morning I went over to get paid. He went down and he had a room under his house. He had like this basement room, which is weird because Tucson has no basements. And uh, he went down and got some cash, came up, handed me all these new $100 bills, kissed me on the cheek and said, thank you. And I'd run into him occasionally, you know, here and there. Um, and he'd always hug me. One day I said, he d- didn't, he died when he was 95. He lived a long time. Yeah. I saw him one day and he looked great. I said, Mr. B, you look terrific. What, you know, you're 90 years old. He says, ah, oh, that's because they say I commit a crime every day. <laughs> oh I think God. that's the last time I saw him alive. But anyway, the, the Godfather films, we talked about those films. You know, yeah, and well, after. Oh, you, yeah, uh, that, that would be an amazing bunch of conversations. Well, and after spending time with him, it, you know, made me want to go back and watch them again. So with the sort of different, different viewpoint. Did he approve? Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he liked that attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, how would he not? And, yeah. and of course, writing the book, they were all so afraid he was going to divulge all this secret stuff, but he didn't. He was, I have to say, he was incredibly smart. And I only saw him um, look scary once. And that's when the, the, the other guy, Sergio, came to get paid. He came the same day I did. And... Uh, he paid yeah. Sergio, he, he paid me, and then Sergio was like waiting, waiting, waiting. And he shook his hand and kind of shoved him out the door. He didn't pay him anything. Did you want to pay him? No, he did not pay him. And uh, there was a big brouhaha about it. Some years later, the guy wrote a, had a journalist write an article about it, and I don't know what happened to him, saying that Mr. B didn't pay him for this all this work he did, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what happened with that. but. That was that. That was a kind of an interesting story, and it's an aside, but it did. Um, it really did affect my viewing of those films afterwards. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. You know, as far as the like really contemporary films, I love your film, Josh. History of Violence. Oh, thank you, thank you. You were you were complimentary at the time. It's a great title too. Oh, isn't it? Oh, uh, yes, I did not come up with a title, so I can say that. Oh, um, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. great title. I, I don't know, man. I'm always, you know, from having written that film, uh, you know, there's still those moments where you get the phone call and it's like uh, some project they want, you know, it's a true crime thing and they want you to sit down with, you know, not Joey Banana, Banano, but someone like that who's, you know, written a book about their life or something. Yeah. And I'm just, that's the last room in the world I ever want. You don't want to do I, that. <laughs> No, no. I, I always flash back to that scene in Sopranos where uh, Michael Imperioli realizes he said something he shouldn't have to go. his TV writer friend, and that's it. You know, that's <laughs> that's uh, the Sopranos is one of mine and Larry's favorite series too. He, Larry loves that. He's watched it over again. Well, we we just did. Um, Nancy and I just finished watching it. Uh, actually, right as the quarantine was starting. But yeah, we watched all eighty four episodes mm-hmm. or something in about a month. Um, yeah, it's only better uh, as time it's goes. It's pretty by. brilliant. It's a, and you know, you think about um, uh, oh, uh, he was so good in that. He's in every scene in that in that series. So yeah, most are almost, almost all yeah. the scenes. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think before I go, guys, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what Larry and I I talked to him some about this, you know, what we were gonna do and oh okay. Picked his brain a little bit. Um yes. 
you know, we were offered a, to do a remake of The Searchers. As, as, a, as, a, as a Western, I assume. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I don't know. You never know these days. Yeah, it, a they a remake, and you know, it's an Alan LeMay novel, wow. and the novel is is different from the film. Um, as novels tend to be. What? Yeah. Oh yes. Well, this one's radically different in the terms of the ending. And um, really, yeah. do you want to do you want to give that away? Sure. I mean, it, you know, I doubt that anybody will read the novel. People don't read much anymore. Although I I would recommend it. Um, in the film, you know, uh, at the end, you know, John Wayne has been, his character has been saying all through the film that he's going, you know, when he sees Debbie, he's going to kill her. Right. And then, of course, the end of the film, he doesn't. He just right. rides up, picks her up, and off they go. In the novel, he kills her. What? So, <laughs> Larry, when we, you know, we, when we were offered this and we started talking about it with each other, at that time, it always bothered Larry that John Wayne didn't kill the little girl at the end of the film. And I said, you know, how, that would be a horrible ending. And, uh, of course, John Wayne didn't want to do that. He wouldn't do it. Um, but now, now, now it's like 20 years later. So I said, what do you think about the searchers now, Larry? He said, you know, I really used to be irritated by the fact that he doesn't kill that little girl. But, you know, over time, he says, I've overcome that. You know, he says, now the only thing that bothers me about it is that it was filmed in the wrong location. Because, <laughs> <laughs> every, you know, all of his movies, all John Ford's movies are all in the Monument Valley. The Monument yeah. Valley represents the West, all the West. And uh, it's quite beautiful, but, you know, and, and what is it, Fort Apache? You're just going in circles. You just keep going around and around, and, and they're going, you're supposed to be traveling for days, but you're in the same place. Yeah. So that bothered him. Um, uh. In the last picture show, he used to think, you know, his own film, he, he used to think it had too much music. The Hank really? Williams, yeah, the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, he was irritated by it again. Hmm. Well, now... He thinks it, no, no. he thinks it's a beautiful soundtrack. Fantastic. So you know this. It's just it's funny how um, to say he's mellowed. I guess he's mellowed. He's uh, Larry's never been like a mean or difficult person, except he'll be difficult with me. But he's very you know he's got his opinions, and don't ask him for it unless you want it. <laughs> you know, it, it was always so scary going into. Um, um, creative meetings with him because I never knew what he was going to say to people. You know, he'd say something like somebody would bring up an idea and Larry would look at him and go, Oh, that's absurd. And then you could see the man wanted to jump out the window, cut his throat and then yeah. jump kind of thing. Um, but I was asking him, you know, now that, now that um, you're older, what do you, what are some of the movies that you really remember as a young man? And he hmm. said, well, Red River, he said he loves it when John Wayne says, take him to Missouri, you know. And uh, um, The Red Badge of Courage with Audie, Audie Murphy. Oh. Really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think how much he, he would have liked it if he'd gotten to see the whole movie. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. And Oh, I don't know. Happily, I'll stand in for the members of the audience who don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> What are you talking about? Uh, as a matter of fact, it's on Trailer Spell tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what? 
It's, it's on, on our trailers from hell. It's one of the trailers that I talk about uh, oh. starting, I think, today. Actually. Tomorrow. It's, 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 today's tomorrow. Thursday? Tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be tomorrow. Um, no, it's just, it, it was a butcher job. I mean, they completely recut really? the movie and while John, well, John Houston was away. And uh, it's it's a 69-minute movie that's, that's supposed to be a major film. And major films don't run 69 minutes. No. But uh, that's a horror story right there. It, uh, it is a terrible story. And it's well-documented by Lillian Ross about what happened and it's it's a it's one of the tragic stories like magnificent magnificent ambersons it's just one of those stories where the people who are making the movie had no taste whatsoever and the people mm -hmm. you know actually really were making the movie were powerless to prevent them having it screwed up so so we're stuck with the screwed up movies but nonetheless they're still both so, so good mm -hmm. that you can kind of read between the lines and kind of imagine what was supposed to be. I mean, there's a, the Red Badge of Courage has a narration, which was, you know, imposed on the movie at the very yeah. end. And it, it's, it's, it didn't need that. It certainly didn't need that. It never had it before. And it was just sort of to stitch together all the things that, you know, weren't on the screen anymore. But it's a terrific movie. Yeah. And, you know, Audie Murphy's performance is so good. You didn't need all that narration. I know. I know. So I, 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 when people say, you know, which, which, which ones of the movies that have disappeared would you like to have reconstituted? I mean, to me, it's between Ambersons and Red Badge of Courage. I mean, they're, they're just right. two tragedies of, of, of movies that I think are probably great that's, movies. That that's a great idea, though. Reconstituted. Wow, well, yeah. you got to find it, and it's all, all that stuff's yes. been thrown out. So, it, um, surprises do happen, but uh, you know, it, they're for the most part when that stuff's gone, it's gone. When, uh, uh, you know, Larry's now married to Ken Kesey's widow. Mm -hmm. And um, Faye just, you know, Faye is very, very quiet. She doesn't talk, talk much at all. Um, but she just told me the other day what Ken's favorite movie was. Oh, but yes. She wore a yellow ribbon. Oh, oh wow. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. I know. I, mean, so I said, you're kidding. And she said, nope, that was his favorite movie. You just never know. You, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you a, a funny story about Larry. Um, when, uh, you know, Horse and Pass By was the, the first one of, it was his first novel, and it was the first one of his novels made into a film. Um, when he, when he went to the premiere was in Dallas, Dallas or Fort Worth. I can't remember. They're right next to each other. And he said he drove all the way there and was locked out of the theater. They wouldn't <laughs> let him in. He got there too late and they wouldn't let him in. Oh, <laughs> here's the, here's the man that, you know, it was just kind of, it was the way he tells it is very funny, but, uh. It's also the worst thing in the world to find yourself in a situation where you have to say, uh, do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> was, and, and he was always, when he was young, he was quite quiet and I think very shy. Not mm. so shy anymore, but uh, he certainly wasn't shy when I met him. He was very opinionated and, and uh, tough. And I could see where he'd be scary to people. He never really scared yeah. me. <laughs> um, but anyway. No, I, it's so nice, Josh, to see you, you know, yes, and Joe, to meet time. you. You too. And of course, nobody can see us except us. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And so trailers from hell, huh? 
Yeah, you should go to our, our website. It's got about a thousand trailers on it with narration by uh, different filmmakers who talk about what 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 those movies mean to them, and hopefully a way to get today's kids and young people interested in movies like your like your friends or your yeah, or nieces and yeah. my nieces and nephews. Yeah, just you know? send them to trailers from hell, and and they'll find some movie that's interesting, and then it'll lead into another movie and another movie, and before you know it, they'll be filmed. Make make sure they have time because how how many are there now? It's almost a thousand. It's addictive. Yeah. Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every week. There's three every week, and then there's a backlog of uh, like all the yeah. all the old ones. Well, I know we've been in quarantine for a while, but before that, um, were there any films either of you were interested in? You know, just recent films, fairly recent films. Uh, I can't remember the last movie I saw before the quarantine, honestly. Yeah, was <laughs> the last movie I saw in a theater yeah. that seems so yeah, long. Maybe it, you know what? I think it was. It might have been Knives Out. Oh, I liked I, that. I liked yeah, that movie. I liked it a lot. Yeah, but I think that may be yeah. the last picture I saw in a theater. I thought that script yeah. was really good. Yeah. What did you yeah. What did you think, Josh? Yeah. No, I I hate I hate this word normally, but it really it was delightful. Yes. <laughs> it was surprise. It was it, a surprise. It, it, yeah, and it was such a sort of nice, it was a sort of love letter to a kind of movie you hadn't seen in a while, mm -hmm. but it does it in a sort of fresh way that makes it feel contemporary. Yeah. And, Larry even uh, liked it. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, he wow, must like be good. It. He doesn't like any, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to get a compliment out of him. Please uh, please give him our best. I will. Please do. And we're, here's we're a happy book. to have him in by proxy. Here's a book. That's right. Here's a book he wrote. It's Backwards. But it's film, film flam. flam is very funny. Terrific book. It is yeah. so funny. Yep. And he he slams a lot of Hollywood. He slams Hollywood a little bit, and a lot of other. Yeah, no, well, it's nice to have a good day job. You can uh, you can do that and get away. These with are it. these are you know like a collection of essays, like old film criticism. He has, he did a bunch yep. of um, film criticism in American film, you know, years ago. I've yeah, got I some remember. of those those old magazines. I have some of those. Back when there were film magazines. That's right. Yes. That's right. They'll be back. We'll all be back. Everything will be Well, back thank you so them. much, Diana. Oh, thank you. you know what? Thank you. This was a lot. For me, this was a lot of fun. Lovely to go on that journey with you. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.